Welcome to Beer and a Movie, the podcast where we combine two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Dave Gurney. I'm here with Joe Hilliard. And then joining us oh. remotely, one of our favorite guests this is the truth. of all time, especially when it gets close to that month of October, which which we're hoping includes more of him. Kyle Ferguson, thank you for being here. Hi, how's it going? It's been way too long, Kyle. I know, it Definitely. does feel. I think it's because, I mean, I think of Kyle when we do horror movies and we haven't done one in a good a good bit. Well, yeah, that, I mean, straight up horror, Evil, Evil Dead Rise, we, we did that a little while back. Um, oh, that was the week after he came on to do something that... I think you're right, yeah. 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 It was yeah. Bo was afraid. You <laughs> thank you. You are love it. You're welcome, man. You you roll with us. I don't know if we did any better. We did this whoa, week. Whoa, Ari Oster, <laughs> one of 2020's most influential horror filmmakers. It only made sense, no? Okay. Uh, in some ways, yeah, yeah, and and one who had aggravated. And the Kyle penis monster no in the attic was terrifying. <laughs> I mean, that that can't be argued, right? Uh, I don't know. Well, but, we're going to get some beer in our glasses, but before we do, guys, tonight's After Hours is going to be kick-ass. Kyle, David, and I, along with Josh DeLeon, are going to program on After Hours this week, our All Horror October. So I'm predicting a deep dive into horror films that will be very, very satisfying. If you're not listening to After Hours, this may be the week to start. Patreon.com slash Beer in the Movie Podcast. So, Kyle, you sent us some a photo of some beers you had on hand. We could not find those locally, so we're going to have a um, a style party, if yeah. you will. And we're going to start it off with an Oktoberfest. What are you pouring there in California where you're sitting? So this one is a uh, Sierra Nevada Oktoberfest Fest beer. Um, and it says in collaboration with Carowieter. Careweeder Brewery. Okay. Can't pronounce that one, but it's a uh, 6%. Looks to be your standard uh, Oktoberfest fair. It's not really described or anything. You're just supposed to know what it is. <laughs> it's Oktoberfest. Cool. And on this side of the country, or I should say halfway across the country, yeah, uh, we're having our eighth beer from 903 Brewers out of Sherman, Texas. Their Oktoberfest on the side of the can says our medium bodied. Marzen Oktoberfest is a malt-forward, tasty treat. Light amber in color, the 903 Oktoberfest finishes dry and clean. This seasonal lager is rich, roasty, and quite delectable. Prost, they say. I, I'm loving the nose on it as, I, as I'm pouring it. I, I'm, I'm getting that sort of nice malty aroma that I want with, a, uh, with an Oktoberfest. Uh, they're saying it finishes dry and clean. I'm a lager guy. You know, don't always go for the more malt forward lagers like this. But this time of year, I I'm excited to have a few. So so I'm excited. This is, I think, my first Oktoberfest of the year of any brewery. Yeah. Yeah. You asked me, are we going to do this this year? Are we doing the pumpkins? Are we doing the Oktoberfests? And drink up, dude. I, this, <laughs> the answer this is before be the me. only one I want to do. How's that Sierra Nevada working for you, Kyle? Oh, pretty good so far. Anytime we get close to this weather i'm always trying to grab them as soon as i can i really appreciate the uh kind of like a red ale the like roasty malt notes i love that yeah this beer that we have here the 903 looks beautiful smells beautiful and we'll reserve comments they on look taste similar color they look similar color as well mine too yeah yours. definitely yeah. an amber yeah love mm -hmm. it 
David, we hadn't discussed. Do you want to talk about the movie? You want me to talk yeah, about the movie? Yeah, sure. You you kind of set us up with the beer okay. there. So, um, you know, we're, we're drinking an Oktoberfest. It is that time of year. We're we're creeping ever towards Halloween season. And so what we have is the latest outing by Kenneth Branagh doing the Hercule Poirot character uh, that he's done in two films prior to this. Right. Uh, Orient Express and then Death in the Nile. Both of those films I skipped. I'll, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll be honest. Um, I, I've seen some other iterations of Poirot over the years, but um, th- this one, given the the haunting theme, the haunting in Venice, the proximity to October, us just kind of itching to get there. I think we were willing to to bite on this. Uh, have you seen any of the uh, previous Poirot films, Kyle? Is I, I'm guessing no. Why? Why would you guess no? That's interesting. Because <laughs> it seems like you fill your movie time with horror first, and then even then, these two would have slidden down the list. That's an assumption that I'm making. We're about to find uh, out. I mean, you are right. I hadn't seen either one. I actually didn't even know that they were connected to each other until okay. I got home and was kind of looking up the cast and everything later on. Right. Um, I took this kind of completely on its own, but I thought that. I wasn't missing anything. Having not seen the previous two, it kind of started with a decent enough setup of our main character, uh, Detective, that I was not lost. I didn't feel like there was anything missing I wanted. I had seen both of them, actually. And it's interesting that these, I think, began coming out more or less when the Knives Out movie started. Yeah. And, And to have those come onto the scene at the same time, like this is popcorn movies for adults, kind of. These, sure. The cinematography, there's a little more care in making them. But Knives Out wins for being cooler movies. Well, you're kind of jumping the gun here when we get I'm to talking our... about how I felt going into. This. OK, OK. Yeah. Well, so here, you know, Poirot is a well-worn character. Um, Agatha Christie, the novelist who who wrote many a story with this character at its center, all murder mysteries of some sort here. Brana doing the third. This one, an adaptation of the Christie novel Halloween Party mm-hmm. that actually didn't take place in Venice, but the filmmaker here and Michael Green, the screenwriter, deciding to sort of transpose it into Venice. I didn't hear anything necessarily about why they they picked that location, but it actually maybe it speaks to the second film we're going <laughs> to be doing in this episode, wh- why maybe they were drawn there. But the basic idea here being that Poirot, um, if we followed the Brana character, is retired now, um, trying to kind of stay out of the detective business, uh, has gone off to Venice, hired a guard who keeps him away from anybody who might even want to try to employ him. And they try. Uh, yes, they do. But when a an old friend who happens to be a novelist, sort of a thinly veiled version of Agatha Christie herself, pops up at his door, compelling him to come with her to witness and perhaps help her debunk a mystic, a medium who, who says that she can commune with the dead. Uh, he's enticed enough by this uh, this novelist who's played by uh, Tina Fey and, yeah. and here. Uh, the, the character's name being um, Ar- Ariadne Oliver. Go for it. So she brings him to the Halloween party going on at the Palazza of uh, the the character's name is uh, Rowena Drake. She is a retired opera singer played by Kelly Riley, who's probably most famous now for being in the Yellowstone series. 
Um, and, and she's invited many different folks here, um, a lot of children, a lot of orphans. Um, there, there's a backstory there. The palazzo she's in used to be an orphanage. Um, they say it's haunted by the spirits of the children who were abandoned by doctors and nurses who, who sort of left them behind. Rowena herself had a tragedy there just a year before when her daughter fell to her death mm -hmm. under maybe suspicious circumstances. And the highlight of this party will be that once the children have left, there will be a seance where this medium who's been invited, played by Michelle Yeoh. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> great to see her show up again. Always. Is going to try to speak to the spirit of Rowena's departed daughter. Right. Um, and again, Poirot there to witness and perhaps debunk Oliver. And then the daughter's former uh, fiancé has been invited mysteriously. Who else? The bodyguard is there. So mm -hmm. there's that kind of, you know, ragtag bat. Cast uh, of characters. Well, yes, one assistant that we know of initially, and then a second pops up later. So yep. there, there's there's sort of that group of people who, when something goes awry, mm -hmm. everybody becomes a suspect, and Poirot starts his detective work, despite having been. They keep pulling him back. That's right, right? Or he's too old for this shit. Is it Danny Glover here we're going for, or is it more the? Uh, I think it's, the Al Pacino. I think this is more. You are so good at what you do that you must do it. Yeah, that's what we're seeing. Okay, here. the cast is collected. A murder occurs when Michelle Yeoh, the spiritualist, the medium, is thrown off question mark the balcony and impales herself on an ancient statue. One of y'all, one of us killed her. Let me deduce who it was. Right. Tina Fey is an actress. We want to start there? <laughs> you did. <laughs> knock, knock yourselves out unless you want me to swing at her. Swing at it. <laughs> A lot of things took me out of this movie. A lot of things took me out of this movie. But um, one is like the accents. Um, and, and it's interesting because a lot of this takes place in kind of real cavernous, high ceiling rooms and so there's a lot of reverb and echo on the voices and so it's very obvious when somebody is slipping in or out of their accent and she's the character that's supposed to be the american novelist so i'm not really sure what accent she thought she was trying to go for mm -hmm. i'm not it was uh there were there were bits of british accent in there from time to time I thought she was going for J uh, Jennifer Jason Lee and Hudsucker Proxy, just rat a tat tat. Yeah, there was definitely 40s, a rhythm to yeah, it. Yeah, 40s. Uh, hey, see, you know, hey, we're doing that thing. See? Yeah, oh, like a, a noir, like a noir. Yeah, exactly. Feel. Yeah, and it was, it, I found it distracting, and not with her, but with a lot of characters. Like, um, anytime some a character would kind of get more angry, they would slip out of the accent they were in, and it was just, I found it pretty distracting. Yeah. Um, I don't know if she was necessarily given all the best lines either, though. You know, if you're that that type of like ratatat, like you said, it was kind of uh, thinly written and not delivered very well either, in my opinion. Yeah, she was an interesting casting choice because, you know, if you look at the who's who casts of the previous two films, Gal Gadot springs to mind. I mean, they could have cast almost probably anybody they wanted to. I thought Tina Fey was an interesting choice. Well, I, I have great love for Tina Fey. Yeah. I mean, as on SNL, Weekend Update, 30 Rock, and, and uh, Mean Girls. I actually have great love for Mean Girls. She wrote sure. that. Oh, um, yeah, definitely. 
So, you, you know, as a comedian, I, I read her autobiography. I find her very funny. I find her very charming in most cases when she's playing kind of a version of herself usually or, you know, some like a probably an amped up neurotic version of herself maybe. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't necessarily feel like it was a slam dunk sort of performance on her part uh, here. And and again, I think part of what Kyle brought up there with, with the sort of uncertain accent that, that was there with her dialogue that was part of it part of it was just the way she kind of carries herself and how later in the film what gets revealed i feel like she should have shown that more i don't know there, yeah. there there was something about that entire character that was the weakest link i think of the film for me Certainly in terms of, of motivation yeah. in terms of uh the, the way that she carried herself you know it's a beautiful movie the cinematography is gorgeous. Um, the film relies on a lot of insert shots. Brana wants you to, the director yeah. and the star, wants you to see just how spooky this place is with insert shots of taxidermy and a flickering candle. Lots of and, shots of birds. He, he's, mm -hmm. he's very interested in birds and their eyes. They were notable. Yeah. And that's a style that one can certainly use. I, I think it was used just fine here. The film looks beautiful. Uh, there's some underwater stuff that looks gorgeous. Yeah. The, the It's a stormy night in Venice. The storm is appropriately photographed, yeah. I think. The, the film hinges on what we know of this character, whether you watched him on BBC or on the previous two films, of knowing that Everything is explainable. Everything is logical. It has a logical end. So the entrance of the supernatural is interesting, but he quickly debunks that Michelle Yeoh is... You know, they're using parlor tricks. There's a, a typewriter instead of a Ouija board, and it turns out that the guy hiding in the chimney, the assistant, is has a gadget that can make the... Kind of a remote control. Yeah, a remote control yeah. that can make the typewriter do these things. And once the trick is ruined... It's not over. There's still some more supernatural stuff. And that is eventually explained in a right. little kind of Agatha Christie type maybe twist. That is unsatisfying. I'm, I'm, I'm holding it back in case anybody wants to talk about anything else. I thought the movie looked good. Was great little popcorn on, a, on an afternoon. Certainly wait for the rental. But I mean, Kyle, did you find anything redeeming? Um, I actually like the music a lot. Okay. Um, it's interesting because I didn't feel like it set up a lot of the scares. It was just really moody, kind of like it, it felt kind of there's some oboe in there. It felt like jazz, but stretched out, um, like kind of droning. Um, and I really like that kind of lulls you, especially the opening shots of the outside of this, you know, big house um, where we're seeing, you know, the the canals and the the big wide open docks and symmetrical stone and everything. And that was all, that was all beautiful. Um, once you get inside, it's less effective. Um, Cause I feel like the, the atmosphere changes quite a bit and then it not being, Oh, sorry, I'm supposed to be uh, focusing on positives here. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the, I would have liked for the, the music I liked, but I would have appreciated it to, build up to scares um you're talking about a lot of insert shots there was lots of times where people were just talking and then all of a sudden you get a and like yeah. a bird just flies across the screen and it's yeah, not the bird set up a, yeah the it's bird not, was it, a jump scare factory yeah yeah and, and not in a way where that was enjoyable 
it's annoying when that type of thing happens. I like a, I like a jump scare movie. I'm not one of those. It's like, Oh, it just relies on jump scares. I like roller coasters too. And if anything that's going to get the adrenaline up, but yeah. if it's delivered like that, it's just, uh, it feels cheap, you know? Um, and it wasn't just the bird. It was lots of things, you know, or just things would just kind of cut all of a sudden and make a big noise, you know, like a door will just slam. Yeah. And it's like, okay, why? Well, I'm, I'm glad that you at least highlighted the score. Cause I do think that's one of the strengths of the film. And, uh, you know, this is uh Hilder Gu- Guanadatir who mm-hmm. did, uh, tar and that. women talking, earlier this year or late last year and early this year based on all the things i've seen her do uh, or heard her do i've been very impressed with her work so i i I think that's another notch in the wind column for her and her work but i think you know where where you're going kyle with with some of the other sound elements and how those like maybe sound jump scares and stuff sort of play out i too felt like it was I feel like it was there to try to unsettle us as an audience and, and kind of invoke this mood of terror and, uh, and, and potential dread of them being trapped in this house. And there's a killer on the loose and what, you know, who, who is it and what could it be? And yet I don't think that the material itself really got me there in a, in an organic way. It, it really is like a, by the book kind of murder mystery. And when I say by the book, it's kind of sad because this is Agatha Christie's really one of the key figures who created that template, right? Who, who, who sort of said this. So for me to say that this is like, you know, a, a, a stereotypical or, or sort of a, you know, boring attempt at doing a murder mystery. Well, okay. But it's, we're going back to the kind of one of the original sources of this kind of story. And so should we expect it to have tricks other than that? But, but I guess what I mean in that the, the horror elements in there that they were going for the jump scares that were felt like a mismatch to me is that those stories really, to me, thrive on personality, thrive on character building, thrive on me getting interested in the little quirks of each character and not so much about me being freaked out that somebody else is going to be killed because I know it's going to be explained at the end. That's sure. part of the whole genre is that, no, right. this is all explainable where the, the detective is going to do the stuff, going to figure out all the, going to see these little clues that nobody else sees. And then bang, it's going to be, you know, sealed up. And so to me, when I have fun with this kind of movie, it's usually because of the really fun performances that we get out of the cast of you know the ensemble cast of it right, right yeah. now joe alluded to knives out you know which i think is the more contemporary you know blockbuster successful version of this this kind of film that we've seen that in glass onion uh in you know the past few years Streaming, yeah. and to me part of what makes those films successful what i why i like them is because they're really great at casting really great with dialogue and and really great with the kind of chemistry amongst the characters to make them work. And I did not feel like that stuff was happening here. 2017 Murder on the Orient Express production budget 55 made 351. Now that's a hit. Yeah. Death on the Nile production budget of 90 made 130 with an asterisk on the release date, February 11th, 2022. It's still suffering from yeah. some pandemic stuff. but. I think that this is the filmmaker saying you loved Poirot in these other two. Now we're going to spooky him up. Yeah. And 
two out of three of us had not seen either of those first two films, and the three of us watch a lot of movies. Yeah. So I don't know if they're there yet with that. The marketing is really interesting as well because it's about like skulls and venice and not the lead character which is the thing that's going to get you back for me the film hinges on its central question which is do you believe in these things or you don't is he going to sniff out that this is not supernatural or is it and i alluded to the kind of twist one of the twists that the way that the hallucinogens were created in both the daughter that committed suicide but didn't yeah and the and Poirot himself who's seeing spirits and ghosts and and, and things right because well, well let's be frank Go right ahead. like at, at a certain point w- when he starts investigating Poirot starts seeing things that he shouldn't see right he sees the ghost or or an apparition of the dead daughter right it, um okay. skulking around he hears put uh, a pin the- put a pin right here because yeah. I need to talk about the fucking trailer. Once, <laughs> okay. once we're talking about the mechanics of the end, I want to come back and make okay. fun of the marketing for this a little bit. Because sure. it, well, did, it didn't do it any service. So so you go beyond that point where it's other people putting on parlor tricks for Poirot to where it's happening in his own head. And so there's a section in the film, kind of like in the middle, you know, the second act, where you really do start to think, oh, there is a haunting going on, right? Because yeah. he, wh- why would he be seeing these things? Then it becomes explained why he sees those things, which, which is, is what you're alluding well, to. Well, just the the, yeah. the the mother, the whose daughter either committed suicide or was murdered yeah. a year ago, uh, changed the garden that the daughter loved so much into only being plants in the rhododendron species. Which true story, I googled it right before you got here. Bees can make a honey that is hallucinogenic with those flowers. And that's what she had done. Hallucinogenic in in smaller doses, but potentially deadly. In the larger doses. So she had been Munchausen syndroming her daughter with this honey, making her appear to be crazy. Right. And then, you know, she's over, she gets an overdose of this honey, which is explained and not important. But this is the honey that Poirot is being fed. And that's what's causing all the hallucinogens. He, He figures it out. Yeah. And he figures it out in the most ham-fisted way when the ex, the fiance of the dead girl yeah. says, this That's is not, not wildflower, wild honey. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is, but it's not wildflower, honey. Wink Jesus. at camera. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that, that was pretty obvious. Yeah. yeah. So do you believe in this stuff or you don't? That's the theme of the film. And, and it does carry it through to the end. I mean, like, they, because supposedly the hallucinogenic properties have mostly worn off. He's kind of back to his full senses towards the end. And yet he has that sort of interaction with the mother, yeah. that, that kind of showdown. And he sees another apparition at that point, the daughter pulling the mother. You know, it's kind of left for us and him because he's kind of asked by Oliver, you know, that Tina Fey character. So did you see, you know... And he doesn't really say, and we're kind of left to open, like, well, was he still hallucinating? Or was there something in the spirit world pulling this woman away? Right. So how, what was the marketing like, Kyle? Because I don't, I guess I did see the theater, uh, the trailer in the theater, but I can't even recall the experience. The trailer shows the scene where he's following the ghost girl down the hallway and right. is asking her questions and then kind of turns and then turns back and she's gone. And there was, I believe, a second trailer that shows 
when he's uh, messing around with the sink and looks up and sees the reflection behind him as well. So when you go into a movie that's asking you, hey, do you believe that there's going to be ghosts? And you've already showed me that there are going to be at least two appearances of ghosts. I'm waiting for the ghost to appear. I'm not trying to figure anything out, Um, which is a big problem. Also, though, when I know you guys were mentioned earlier, this book came out a long time ago, and now we've seen a lot of movies since then. So it's kind of hard to pull apart the way this adaptation should have been structured. But I feel like going into something now where you see a mystery of a ghost girl that's dead, I'm immediately going, oh, it's the mom or the dad. (laughs) <laughs> because I've seen Sixth Sense before and that ghost girl in that movie. You know what I mean? I, yeah, it's, it's exactly the same story. We have, a lot, more, we have a lot more context for, for reveals and twists like that. So when I see dead ghost girl, I go, oh, it's definitely the parents. And then it's asking me, well, do you think there's a ghost? And I said, well, I know there's going to be a ghost. Which parent was it? And so I'm just kind of <laughs> yeah. waiting. You know, it really shot itself in the foot. I, I don't know I get why, that. why a reveal like that would be in the trailer. If that's the whole premise of your movie is, are you sure? I remember because well, yeah, you, you showed it to me. I remember seeing the trailer and kind of thinking it was a little odd because I did not perceive it as a Poirot trailer, even though I hadn't seen those other films. I know the right. Poirot character. I knew that Brana had done these other films in the character. And so once I put that together, I'm like, oh, they're trying to position this as a different type of Poirot film because he's it's not normally the supernatural is not usually a big element of those stories there is mystery obviously and there's you know like duplicitousness and 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 things that are and and I'm sure ghosts do come up occasionally but in my experience with it it's much more sort of um grounded and so that the trailer was showing me oh he's seeing these apparitions it kind of makes me think okay there's a this is like a different take on that character right bringing the supernatural world in that said i hear i I hear exactly what you're saying kyle and i do think it it takes away from that air of oh is this real is this not if you're if you're kind of no okay at some point in the film later he's going to be seeing ghosts himself what what is it that you know gets him there how does he get there I, I think the honey thing is kind of clever. I mean, I, I think they could have made a better film. But for me, I, I go back to what my biggest problem with this is, is I just don't feel like the characters get developed enough. I need to know the quirks. I need to know that like, and Drake, the the opera singer, kind of the center, the one who ends up ultimately being the one responsible for the death, right. the deaths, the murders, just doesn't, I don't understand that character. I don't like, is she... Is she like an upset opera singer that she had to retire early? Is she? I, I don't know. I don't know what it is that's right. motivating her. I mean, other than she had this kind of um, possessive relationship with her daughter that led her to do some nasty things. Yeah, let's throw our cards on the table. I I enjoyed myself at the theater. Mm-hmm. I think you would rent this. You do not have to watch the first two to understand anything, as Kyle said. Agreed. Uh, this is this would be a fun rainy day Saturday rental. It, it, I I would recommend it at that level. I don't recommend this. I mean, I'm going to say I oh. I'm not <laughs> I'm not saying that I. In fact, I probably will watch one of the earlier films just to see. Watch them with your girls. I think I watched that would this be a one fun with Adela. Thing. 
I would be interested to see Murder on the Orient Express. I know that a lot of people like that one, not just you, Joe, but I, I had some other people say, oh, it's a fun, you know, take on it. In this, And I think a more straightforward Poirot murder mystery mm-hmm. I could probably go it's with. It's pretty. It's pretty people. I it's think this one watch. in trying to weave in some of the atmospheric horror stuff kind of does itself a disservice by taking away from the character building that the other ones have, maybe. So I'd give those other ones a chance. But to me, I would tell anybody, who, if you haven't seen those other ones already and you're not like a diehard, don't bother jumping to this one. This is when Kyle goes, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, you fucking wish. No, um, I, I, would, I wouldn't recommend it. And I wouldn't say it's a rental. I would say if you're interested in mysteries that you think this would be like, just catch it on regular streaming. Um, and it'll like scratch that enough of an itch. Um, but honestly, not even knowing that there was two movies before it, I'm not going to go back and watch those based off of this one. Out of the three, I would assume that the one with ghosts would be the one I would be interested in. And if yeah. this didn't cut it for me, I, I don't see myself going backwards through the through the that's series. A, that's you know? a very fair take from you. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I, I just I just can't see myself going backwards. If I can say another positive, because I totally Please. forgot, um, I actually liked all the period costumes because yeah. um, I believe they said this was set in the was it the late 40s? 1947, I mm-hmm. think is what the date. So it's like just after the just Post after World War Two. Yeah, right. And there was some moments, I believe, where they were like even showing American flags and stuff on the walls like like it had been, li- you know, liberated, you know, yeah. Um but uh, the costumes were awesome because this is Halloween mid forties in Venice. And so yeah. everybody's wearing like these uh, not like plague doctor masks, but everybody like rowing on the canal has these really interesting masks and big black cloaks. Yeah. There's a bunch of guys. There's like uh, they're doing like a puppet show, like shadow puppets for the children in the, in the house before the seance. Yeah, I liked all that. And I, I thought that was like pretty neat watching them like pull the old contraptions to like maneuver the sheet and everything. And and I thought that that was really cool. You know, just mid forties technology, watching that all work. That, that was, that was neat enough, you know, um, set up all this atmosphere and then just kind of, kind of like David said, didn't do much with it because the characters were so thin. They kind of all got a monologue about their past traumas that went on too long for me. And then, and that was all they got, you know, one yeah. of the guys has more PTSD. That's his personality. Yeah. We don't care about anything else about him. You just need to know that at one point he's going to get mad for no reason. It's like yeah. Chekhov's, Chekhov's military PTSD. And I, I don't really dig that. <laughs> yeah. not, not from like a ableism perspective or anything like that. I'm just saying it just feels lazy. Yeah. No, I, 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 it substitutes for real character development in a way. Yeah. I, you know, what you said, Kyle, actually about how, the 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 depiction of Halloween in that era was interesting. I totally agree with it. And it actually made me think of something that came to my mind when Joe was talking about how much he liked the cinematography. I do think there's some good aspects of the cinematography here. And I know it's part of the genre, I, this specific subgenre, that they all have to get trapped in one space so that he can question everybody and we can know that it's all yeah. contained and all the suspects are there. I felt robbed a movie called A Haunting in Venice and by and large, I get like maybe 10 minutes at the beginning of the film where I'm actually seeing Venice and then maybe like a minute at the end and the rest is right. Exactly. It's set inside. Like, and again, those rooms are interesting. It's big cavernous. Cool, cool set. 
cool but set, it's not, but not it's Venice. Not, yeah, not capitalizing on the sort of inherent, yeah. you know, sp- potential spookiness of Venice. So that yeah. that felt a little bit like, oh, God, don't put it in the title. Then. <laughs> Unless you're afraid of birds, in which case this movie's <laughs> fucked up. Because <laughs> there's a there's a parrot a couple times, you know, it's yeah. terrifying shit. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna run out and get me a um, Sierra Nevada Oktoberfest Fest beer, yeah, just so that I can judge it alongside what Kyle's about to say. But let's talk about this 903 Oktoberfest, yeah. David. This is delicious. This is a fantastic Marzen. Yeah, I mean, like Kyle said, when this time of year comes, although I was going to ask him and he can answer when when he gets to his review, does it actually start feeling like fall in California, Southern California this time of year? Because it doesn't really in South Texas. Prepare to be jealous. Nonetheless, when September hits and the Oktoberfest start arriving on shelves and on in taps and breweries and and, uh, and good beer bars, my mind does go to. Oh, that, okay. It's time to have these kind of slightly heftier kind of loggers that have a maltier kind of backbone to them. And w- whenever that comes, I'm always excited for it. Now, it's not a place that I want to stay all year because, again, I, I live in a very hot place. And so for me, the, the more typical kind of light loggers are, are usually going to be the thing that I'm going to want to gravitate towards, uh, you know, in the summer months, which, which extends quite a long time here. But. When it is the time, when it is that fall season, when we're leading up to Halloween, when we have Oktoberfests going on, I think a good Oktoberfest is as good as any beer I could have. And 903, I think, is doing a nice job with this one. I, I really do. It's really nice, clean, crisp, not a lot of aftertaste there, not a lot of hop character, but there shouldn't be. It's just a really mm-hmm. nice, clean, amber lager that we have. So I'm, I'm happy with it. This, uh, in our little lager conversation that is ongoing... I would drink this any time. This is good. Maybe it's that multi-forward mm-hmm. that you know I like in my ales. Yeah. Kyle, how was that Sierra Nevada? Oh, I liked it. I mean, I had a couple of this 12-pack before this uh, recording session. Um, but yeah, I, I like this one. Um, you, you mentioned yours says it's supposed to be crisp and clean finish. Um, this isn't like super crisp it's not like a refreshing lager yeah um but i am i love the the roasty like like i said before kind of like the red ale like malt malt to it just being able to get that early when normally i would be waiting for the cold season and then just pounding guinness um (laughs) the extra stout guinness um this kind of gives me those like the the vibes of drinking something even lighter than that you know what i mean yeah um so i i appreciate it it's it's a lot of the notes i like while still being like crushable sessionable yeah what's the abv on that sierra nevada kyle do you remember this guy is six yeah we're five point five point four nice okay yeah no it's it's a good zone to be in and uh you know it's it it is It's it's a it's a perfect uh you know beer for this time of year well listen on after hours patreon.com slash beer in a movie podcast we're about to talk horror but oh my god the next film i cannot wait to talk about with you guys horror on all the lists it's been on my list for as long as i can remember finally got to see it what might go with haunting in venice stay right where you are
we're back. We're back. <laughs> Love it. I Love can't it. wait. I cannot wait to talk about this movie. Well, I'm excited that you're so excited about it. I, I was a little bit worried suggesting it, honestly. Is I mean, I think it's a perfect pairing in many ways, but it's also a little bit of a challenging film. Mm-hmm. And and okay, well, we'll 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 get into talking about that. But before we can go there, we have to get something in our glasses, gentlemen. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what Kyle's brought for himself, but I'll go ahead, spill the beans with uh, w- with this beer that we have that, uh, you know, how many times we say this, we almost need like some sort of uh, chart just to mark. We're, we're far beyond where we could do that. But Daniel Benavidez, oh. great, great friend of the show, Whoa. has once again supplied us with a beer. This is a beer that... I believe came up in conversation at some point on an episode. It might even been an after hours and Daniel heard it. And I think Joe had said he would really like to taste this one someday. And lo and behold, all Joe needs to do is say something like that. And Daniel provides what he's provided to us is a 2022 mm. Pumpkinator. Now, we've had Pumpkinator on the program. We had it in 2018. Yes. Back in the 30s, episode number 30-something. Like the You know, early days of the program. I think we've even maybe had it on an After Hours or I'm something. Sure we so, did. You know, it's a beer that it's put out by St. Arnold Brewing. Our 11th time to St. Arnold's. Yeah. The patron saint of beer is St. Arnold. The patron saint of Texas craft brewing yeah. is St. Arnold Brewery, along with Real Ale and a couple others who are kind of the old school mm-hmm. uh, cats on the block. But here you have this beer that they make that is always a hefty imperial stout with pumpkin spices added to it. In this case, they've aged it in bourbon barrels. And that's what Holy Joe wanted to shit. experience. We love it when they do that with a, with a good imperial stout. This is 12.6%. Oh! I'm going to crack it open. We got high octane fuel for this second half of the episode. Uh, you guys are having fun over there. <laughs> and, and knowing that Kyle was going to open a pumpkin beer, I went to the store and bought one. And on the way home, I was like, wait a second. I picked up the Elysian, Elysian, Elysian Night Ale pumpkin ale and remembered that it was AB InBev trash on the way home. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and open it so we can, you know, just taste it and yeah. talk about it maybe. But what do you got, uh, Kyle, over there in California? Uh, first, I'm going to defend Elysian. I like those ones. Um, okay. There's a mixed pack of those pumpkin beers. One of them has lactose, but all the other three I love. Um, I wonder, did we get one with the lactose? We have the great pumpkin here that Joe is. Uh, no, I think that one's that one's clear. It's the coffee one. I think it's called Pumpuccino. Okay. No, that's not this one. Yep. Yeah, that that one has lactose in it, but all the rest of them, I feel like have really good spice to them. Um, it's like drinking a pumpkin pie. Um, but this one I've got here is from Southern Tier Brewing in New York. Um, and this is the Pum King Imperial yeah. Pumpkin Ale. Look at and that. And it's an 8.6. No, getting up there. Another Imperial. Yeah, no, that that is one that we get occasionally down here. So I've I've had that before. Um, I'm excited to hear what you think of it this today while we're recording. I'm really it excited to try this. Yeah, I'm getting definitely bur- bourbon, but definitely also the pumpkin spice notes. So that it's it's an interesting combination of of uh aromas. I don't know. I, I'm gonna have to go in for a sip to make up my mind. But so, Kyle, we'll do there. you? You said you like the Oktoberfest. Are you eager to enjoy October and se- late September when the pumpkin beers are coming out too? Is that a thing you like? Yeah, definitely. Um, I have to be a little bit careful 
being vegan, I, they'll like drop lactose and random things that I, and I have to be careful of that. When people go for like a pumpkin pie, they usually throw in like a, like a cream note, um, yeah. which I have to be wary of. But I, I like the, the spices. And like I said, it's still super hot here in Southern California. So I'm just trying to force myself into the spirit of watching horror movies and just having a good vibe, <laughs> feeling cozy, even though it's way too hot. Well, then let's not hesitate, because I remember seeing and hearing about Don't Look Now. It's on a ton of lists. In 2012, this film, Don't Look Now, 1973, uh, directed by, help me, Nicholas Regg. I say Rogue. Rogue, Rogue. R-O-E-G. Yeah. Um, was the number one British film of all time in 2012. In, in 2012. It's, it's, it's since been eclipsed. You know, sure. these lists shift and change. But uh, it's been on horror lists forever. It's been on my personal watch list for a really long time. So when you suggested it, David, because it was shot in Venice, yeah. and there's the fantastic easy connection. Yeah. I, I, yes, yes. A man being haunted. Don't look now is a 1973 thriller horror film, as I said, directed by Nicholas Roge. Roge? We going that way? <laughs> you can. I, I go with the hard G. I don't know. What it is. Rogue. Yeah. Adapted from the 1971 short story by Daphne du, du Maurier, mm -hmm. who did Rebecca, right. a film we have not done on the show, which we need to. Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland portray Laura and John Baxter, a married couple who traveled to Venice, following the accidental death of their daughter, which we see in the first seven or so minutes of the film. After he accepts a commission to restore a church there in Venice, they encounter two sisters, one of whom claims to be clairvoyant, and informs them that their daughter is trying to contact them and warn them of danger. Now, at first, John dismisses their claims, but he starts to experience mysterious sightings himself, I should mention. That when the little girl uh, drowns at their uh, in, at a pond at their English, English yeah, yeah country estate country yeah, estate, yeah. she's wearing a red slicker, a red uh, raincoat, raincoat, yeah. and he begins seeing a figure in Venice down the hallway, down the pathway away from him. He can't quite get to it of a child in a red, you know, raincoat, red mm -hmm. red rain slicker. I am going to ask that we don't spoil. We were a spoiler podcast, but let's not spoil that very last scene until we need to. Is that cool with okay. everybody? Yeah, sure. All right. <laughs> I wouldn't know how. It wouldn't make any sense to anyone. <laughs> so, hey, Kyle, had you seen this one before? I, I never saw it. No. First time watch early, early on, their child drowns, and then there's a hard cut to him working on the church. Right. That's when I stopped the first time I started it. I was like, I'm way too tired. I got to come back to this later. But that was maybe a year ago. I just no forgot. Mm -hmm. I just forgot. Um, but that, that first bit where they're at their home and the daughter dies is shot crazy well. Um, the music is just really draws you in. You know, we talked about lack of chemistry with the last movie. Here, all it is is chemistry. Everybody is looking at each other like they're the only person in the world. It's very, um, everybody feels very like connected to each other. So like you feel between the husband and wife, you know, that there's, that they actually care about each other. You know, mm -hmm. he runs out to the daughter and it just, you get like kind of one scream where it's slow motion and kind of the, but yeah. then there's like also a soundless scream where you're just like feeling it instead of hearing it. 
and then that's as much as i had seen until this watch so i was just kind of mostly fresh on it do you guys mind if i delve a little bit into that opening seven minutes where the daughter drowns okay so this is where we learn that he at least has an interest in old churches it turns out that he's a building historian a church historian and that's what he's hired to do in venice but he's looking at slides of a of a stained glass window and in the slide is a figure with the back to the camera mm-hmm. of a red cloaked figure much like his daughter right and he accidentally spills some scotch or whatever water i don't even know on it and it makes the red of that slicker in the slide smear like you know Mm -hmm. run over the wall of the church if you will Mm -hmm. and as and then he has what i i I took on i watched it twice i Mm -hmm. I turned it off i turned it back on again Mm -hmm. of what appears to be a premonition that something wrong is happening outside right and that's the first time that I guess we're to believe that he's got some kind of precognitive or I don't want to say psychic, but uh, a sense that's, yeah, you know, something's going on. He runs outside where his son, son, yeah, yeah, is, um, has running toward him because the little girl has fallen. This weird slow motion submersion of her mm-hmm. as she falls in. And then him almost like he's drunk. And certainly scared, wading into the pond to pull her out and the anguish and the grief that we feel he feels as he pulls her body out and is trying to make his way back to the house. It was tragic Mm -hmm. and horrible and gorgeous. I mean, this is that 1970s filmmaking that I love so much. This is the same release here, 1973, as The Wicker Man and The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. But it's pre-Halloween. It's pre-Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's it's rule-making, almost. Mm. Because he, uh, Rogue, the director, is making up, almost, the way Rosemary's Baby did, a whole new thing in mm. my mind. That's just the first seven minutes. Then you're right, Kyle. Quick cut to them. I looked it up. I guess it's supposed to be a few months later. Yeah. In Venice with them both there... I guess doing their best to take their mind off of the tragedy that happened just a few months earlier. Yeah. The opening of this film is as gut wrenching an opening as, as you're going to encounter. I think if you can go with it now, I do think it also establishes what I think can be a challenge for some people is, you know, Nicholas rogues approach to editing. Um, in oh, his it's so interesting is and and it isn't just this film it's like it's something that shows up and like if you ever see his film walkabout which is right around this time a performance was a film he made before like he loves sort of cutting back and forth between different moments in a story so you know like linear chronology is is sort of uh not adhered to in, in a very uh you know fastidious way and and i think and, and in a lot of cases, I think that's very, I mean, in all the cases, I think it's very intentional. In a lot of cases, I think it's showing you more the subjectivity of these characters and how these moments of the past still play out in their present. But also, I think given the, as you just said, Joe, the fact that uh, that John, the, you know, the, the uh, Sutherland character here is, um, you know, perhaps gifted with some sort of ability to 
you know, predict to see into the future that it's showing us that kind of experience of, of mm -hmm. the world that he has, that he kind of doesn't want to, you know, it's an internal struggle that he's having where he doesn't want to necessarily recognize these things that he's seeing as being premonitions and instead just kind of go about his life as if everything is as you would expect it to be right without, without these kind of supernatural. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, they go from him working like cut too quickly, Venice, a few months later, mm -hmm. him working, then them meeting at a restaurant where it's all smiles mm -hmm. and lovey dovey. Clearly, this is a couple that has not addressed the pain and grief that is probably the most challenging things we human have to do, and that's live on after the death of the Well, child. initially, they seem to be doing far better than you would expect. Yeah, right? yeah. And that's what I'm yeah. saying. It's yeah. like it's showing, okay, we're on vacation working almost. Yeah. One of the one of the things that I liked about this movie a lot is that it kind of came it actually had a lot of humorous parts to it too to me but they were like a lot more subtle than you would expect. It's not like a horror comedy or anything by any means but just kind of humorous uh little bits like this uh hotel that they're staying at wh where they seem to be the only people <laughs> staying there. Um, and this poor guy who works there keeps trying to say, hey, you guys staying for dinner? No, we're going out. And he's just like, fuck, man. Like you can always <laughs> see him in the back just really frustrated that he's trying to get any business he can. And and it's it's just like, no, we're working or no, we're, we're off to do this or that. And just being able to see them in the background. And then later on, he's just like, oh, we're closed now. Yeah, but was my wife here? I don't I don't know. We're closed. <laughs> so that that was that was a good bit. Honestly, the, a lot of the middle part of this movie um, felt like maybe we were spinning our wheels a little bit because um, we kind of set up that they have all this grief and everything. And as soon as they run into the couple women where one of them is, you know, has the clairvoyance and says, oh, we, we see your daughter. Um, she's happy. She's she's laughing. She's smiling. You know, like there's nothing to worry about. She's fine. And the mom kind of takes that as, oh, great. Um, I can kind of clear my mind of this and you can tell that the dad not believing that or trusting that mm -hmm. still has kind of his walls up about his grief. Like, like he's not at ease. Like the, the wife was put at ease by this news, right? He's not taking the same, the same, uh, solace from it. Right. And like, honestly, as kind of a, I don't even want to say like atheist, but kind of like a, a cynical person, like, Oh, show me the empirical evidence. You know, it's, it, I can totally get where he's coming from where like, no, some things like that just suck and it's yeah. hard to deal with. There's no cheat code to, Oh, they're in a better place. It's just going to be rough until he, it's not rough anymore. And it starts to kind of put him and his wife at odds with each other. I, I hear where you're coming from where, where, where the, where there is a section of the film where it can really feel like there, there, what, what's going on here? What are we really watching? But I do think that, you know, what it sets up well is is the way that a couple like this, that, who's still very much in love, right? I mean, I have to address, I mean, I had forgotten how frankly sexual that scene is of, of their lovemaking uh, in, in, shortly after the, you know, they, they've encountered this uh, clairvoyant who, who tells the wife that the, 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 the blind okay. sister with yes. blue, hazy 
eyes mm-hmm. that, as Kyle said, tells the mother, "Yeah, I saw your daughter and she is happy and she is smiling, but she is warning you of a danger. That's well, that comes important. later. That comes later. Is that after the lovemaking? I think so. Yeah. First because, the lovemaking, then the Because the lovemaking, because then she gets home. And, and actually, I was, <laughs> I was watching this at home. Uh, it was yesterday afternoon. And I put it on. I'm like, okay, this is kind of a, a this is going to be too boring to, to pull in either of the girls if they, right. you know, happen to wander into the, to the living room while I'm watching this. And it got to a point where that scene was about to unfold and it, clicked for me and you i'm like you oh wow this gets a lot more f- yeah. <laughs> graphic than i had thought going into it and i so i paused it and i said hey babe, <laughs> you should probably leave so i did it, 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 she got out of the room before before the real stuff went down but that is one of the most graphic sex scenes uh in like a you know non- I just X-rated kept thinking, film. I just kept thinking 1973 question yeah. mark. And, I mean, and you look it up and it was a controversial ahead, yeah. thing to, I mean, it, it would definitely, they, it was all he the did talk have, in the salacious magazine. Right. I mean, rogue had to cut, uh, some bits out of it. I mean, apparently it came down to it, the censors that the, the MPAA said, if we see thrusting, meaning up and down or in and out, right. Then it's not allowed. So he intentionally cut it in ways, and you can watch it. Like he intersperses shots of them post coitus, r- putting their clothes back on, with the shots of them in coitus. And he would have him like thrust down and then cut to a shot of him buttoning his shirt. And then they would cut back to a shot of him pulling out. <laughs> so, like you couldn't see in, out. You could see in. Yeah. And then go it. And then you could see out. <laughs> there is a network of people that ask me, what are the movies we're watching this week? Yeah. And then we'll discuss them maybe a little bit ahead of time. And I, I remark, this is one of the most uh, ahead of its time, I guess, sex scenes. If you consider well, I the think time it was, period that it was made. You think in. about the moment it was in. This was like porno chic era. This was like, or right around when Deep Throat was coming out. Right around okay. when people were starting to think, oh, there may be a viable option for frank sexuality on screen to actually become part of more complicated story. storytelling and, and stuff like that. And so I think this was one of those moments where a filmmaker actually did go out on a limb a little bit and yeah. try to include something like that here. And he did. I mean, he successfully did and it's in there. And I think it actually works really well to support the story because, you know, Kyle said, like, if we were talking about the fact that we didn't really get the characters and, yeah. and understand their relationships to one another in, ha- in Haunting in Venice, this film, I think, really nicely establishes the deep and tortured bond between these characters. Yes. Um, and this sex scene is a big and, part and of a that. way that they're hiding their lack of dealing with the real grief that is consuming them most likely. Yeah. And a way that you can distract yourself with your partner. And Kyle, I'd, I'd, I can't wait to get your take on this is just through let's just bone you know also great that warren Beatty was totally pissed off about that i I read that too i read that too this was right around mccabe and mrs miller he he and christy were an item and and uh and he was not apparently very happy that the the rumor rag started talking about this sex scene and he flew as i understand it to london and, and demanded that rogue take it out of the movie which he did not yeah how do you and your partner uh kyle (laughs) yeah right uh well i'm not gonna get into that but um i don't blame you yeah 
the uh you guys kept saying like graphic or like shows so much pushes the boundaries but but honestly like as far as a sex scene this is the one and there's been a lot of like discourse online too about like sex scenes in movies and oh is this even necessary to the plot and i'm just like well most shit isn't necessary to the plot we're watch- we're here watching a movie for like the entire thing that a movie encompasses you know which can just be the atmosphere the vibe just wanting to watch something for entertainment. This has so much passion in it mm. that you like, I was even forgot their actors. Yeah. I'm just watching like a, a man and a wife in love really feeling it. And the way that it's cut, like you said, for me watching it, I didn't even take that as like subtle or um, creative censoring of the scene. For me, it was just like artfully shot. You know, you, you, you end up seeing not, not just them, them getting on, getting it on, but also like afterwards of like, they both kind of have a glow on them as they're like getting, they're getting ready to go out and they're just, you can tell they're both just kind of like filled with, uh, I don't even know what to, what to call it. They're both like fulfilled, you know, and, and have like a slight smirk to them as they're like looking in the mirror and tightening their shirt or whatever. You know that you can you can tell that the love is there, and that kind of makes it way worse. The butting of heads that we're getting of the different ways they're dealing with the trauma. It's not just a sex scene for look at these people going at it. It's a sex scene for no, they really love each other. That's yes. what makes this so fucked up is that they can't come eye to eye on this. Agree. You know, like, and yeah. that's that's where that's where. Uh, a lot of things, and I'm not I'm not a prude or anything. You know, I'll see people hacked up in movies for fun all the time. I like don't get as much pleasure out of just sex scenes in movies as a lot of other people seem to. This one, though, definitely 100% like earned its place in this movie. Artfully did the thing it was meaning to do. You know, like op- avoided the censors to get released in the way that it was. So like, bravo. You know, like kudos to everybody involved who pulled this off because, like, it didn't feel intrusive even in a movie that's otherwise sexless. Kyle, I think you said it beautifully, and I and I think that um, what I love about it, 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 where sex scenes often feel like an like just an addition to films, like it's there to titillate. It's yeah. it's it's there to oh, this movie has boobs in it. You know, like mm-hmm. that's I, I will agree. That a lot this was of, the storytelling. Well, that's it. That's it. Like, and it could be like it. It, it you know, I it. It's like this glimpse back to a moment where, oh, people were thinking of like part of the human experience is love. Part of how we express love is through sexuality. Part of how we do that, and that can be used to tell story. That can be used to develop the characters and show us where they are. I mean, I think w- what I've read is that the reason that Rogue put this in because it wasn't initially in in the script, from what I understand, right. Or it's certainly not in her short in the story, story right? Yeah. Like, but the reason why he insisted on putting it in is because otherwise you just have this couple who aren't aligning the whole film, and you like they don't see things the same way. And so, where is the love there? Why do they have it? And putting this in makes it clear: no, there yeah. is this deep bond between them. They do have this really deep, you know, love between each other, and it's you know th- the different ways that they're processing things and the different ways that they're willing to either accept that there is this kind of afterlife or this, or this other, 
you know, sensory world that exists, the clairvoyant can tap into and that actually Sutherland, you know, ironically, Sutherland being the one who actually experiences that, but is unwilling to accept it. It's I mean, it's 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 a great tension that's in there. But if it was only that tension, I don't think the film would work as well. Well, because then you would just pick a side. Yeah, exactly. Right. And two things, then we can move on. Number one, there's I've, I've said it once on this podcast. I've said it a hundred times. There's nothing sexier than David saying coitus. And, <laughs> and number two, <laughs> there is a, there's a cheat code that's banging. And number three, this is going to be the most watched film that people that listened to a a BAM episode hadn't seen are going to go see now. You think so? (laughs) Oh, yeah, definitely. And not even because of the horror, because I disagree with you, Kyle. I love the middle act of this film. It's all red herrings. Is this about the church religion exorcist? Is this Mm -hmm. about spiritualism, you know, uh, psychic, clairvoyant, occult? Or are all of those things red herrings? Because they kind of all are. Right. I mean, except that the filmmaker is so interested in making you not understand what's happening almost that it's not until the very end or a second watch that you begin to really fully understand this movie. I think this movie is deep and layered and I I enjoyed every bit of it. Even that second act, Kyle, that I completely understand what you're saying when he when there's a an accident, when he's up on a scaffold. Yeah. Is that a supernatural thing that occurs when a two by six falls down and breaks the scaffold and now he's um, dangling from it mm-hmm. uh, for an extended period of time, maybe even, even a little too long. Great uh, scene, though. I love very, it. Yeah. I was afraid for him. You know, thinking of shooting something like that in the mid 70s is scary well, yeah. enough, you know, because, it- you know, the safety protocols weren't the same as they are now. And apparently Sutherland ended up doing the scene himself, even though oh, they, is that right? they had, I was a, looking for they a, had stunt a stunt man who was going to do it, but he wasn't happy with like the way that the insurance was set up on the film. Mm. And so he was unwilling to go forward with it. So Sutherland just decided to do it himself. And apparently after the fact was told by another stunt person that the way that they had rigged him up, like his safety line was not a safe oh, <laughs> line. Boy. Like if he had actually let well, go of the rope, he out. would have been screwed. But, you know, he was able to hang on and, you know, made it through the the shooting of the scene. But I agree, Kyle. I think that is one of the most sort of truly tense, suspenseful. I mean, it's a very physical film in some ways that I don't think I often I mean, it, there's almost like. I think of action films as very physical. I think of horror films in some ways as physical, but this one has has something that it's doing that's just different altogether. Again, with the human sexuality in it, with with the peril that he's put in there, um, the way that he interacts with these different spaces. I I love the, you know when I was saying in the first half of the, of this episode about how I felt like a haunting in Venice kind of squandered the location like okay let's tran- let's put this halloween tale oh, that Venice Christy did this. and put this in Venice and it just felt to me like okay you could have said it anywhere it doesn't matter you're stuck inside a big mansion like just put it in the mansion out in the woods I don't care but this one totally capitalizes on it. Him wandering those canals. Being unable to pursue the the red slickered figure because there's a river in the way. 
being impeded, needing to find a footbridge to get over to the other area, Mm -hmm. all that stuff, the church itself that he's working on, all of that stuff, I think it sort of adds to this kind of atmosphere. Like you say, Joe, it, it, you know, it helps sort of externalize some of those themes that you're talking about, because there's certainly an interest. I mean, he's working for a bishop. They're working on a church. So religion that, is the there. The slide in the very first scene yeah. is, is on a church. The the uh, the There's occult. religious the, themes here. The clairvoyance, yeah. right? Like him being more man, a modern man with, uh, you know, you know, groundings in history. A and, Doctor and Who wardrobe. Right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that. There's these, these sort of conflicts going on in the story that I think are externalized and sort of visualized through the location as well. That is just, it's a really beautiful, um, you know, sort of pairing of theme and setting and and character that just all works really well for me. I liked this movie. I, I don't want to sound like I'm a detractor or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the thing for me is once once we figure out they have the disagreement um, on how Whether they how over or... our how over our grief are we? Right. And one of them is way further along than the other based on like spirituality. They're able to get to a, a better place, you know, to deal with the grief. Um, and he's not there and keeps just kind of seeing this, this figure and trying to chase it down. And we know vaguely that there's killings going on, but like yeah. the movie doesn't care about that at all. And I kept joking, Adrian watched this with me and I kept joking that it's kind of like the first Twilight movie where you know that there's like people getting killed by vampires, but we're like, no, don't worry about it. This is a high school romance movie. That's for the sequel, you know, but in this one, you really only get like, oh, a body is getting taken away by a canal boat. And it's like, what? Mm -hmm. And, and Mm -hmm. so we get little bits of, okay, there is a killer out there. There's kind of vague uh, unease at his job because he's like trying to prop up this this like statue or gargoyle or something and it he's like balancing on a ladder and it's kind of sketchy how he's how he's balancing and he's trying to yeah. see where his wife is and see where the psychic is and make sure they're not talking to each other while he's balancing a statue on a ladder the thing earlier where he's on the ledge and the thing falls and he's hanging from it but but a lot of it I'm like okay so we're we're having like scenes they don't necessarily seem super like connected to each other. Like we're going through to a point. I cannot so argue with center, you. No, I, I, and I, and I get, I get where you're coming from. Cause it takes like the end and then watching it back through from the beginning, all the things in order to kind of like rationalize why a lot of it's even happening. You need that. You need the end for all of it, even though I can't explain the end. Well, it's weird. <laughs> but when he, Okay, so their son in England has an accident and she flies off. And while she is gone for 24 or 48 hours, he sees her. Right. right? And we see him see her. We see her as the audience. But we also then learn that she is in England, so he couldn't have seen her. And that's where the movie, I think, really starts to kick in in an awesome way until this ending. And I guess I will allow us now to discuss the ending. But when you say kick in, when you say kick in, you're talking about like the last 20 minutes. 
And that's where I have my only issue with the movie yeah. is when you know, I'm, I'm, I'm accidentally I'm backing up your point here, but yeah. I don't mean to. I think, I think it's a little earlier than that, but, but I, I hear, I mean, I, I just, you're, I, you're a long time going. So what's the, where's all this leading to? And you're okay, seeing well, things happen and go, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. You know, I'm paying attention. I'm following along. Every scene is great, but I'm like, for what? Well, I think you have, and then we hit it. You have that the the setup that okay you're in danger you need to leave and and you know uh, you know Christy really takes that seriously obviously right I mean she and and Sutherland is like come on like I'm I'm doing a job here and we're do, like are we going to listen to these people like you know they, they do a seance look another connection with our haunting mm-hmm. events. yeah um, and you know and she's convinced and he's just not. And like I said, the irony of that, he's having these, but he's not willing to accept it. He's not but willing. She, hold on. He's not allowed to. Remember when they're having the seance and he's trying to lurk around outside to listen in and everyone thinks he's a peeping Tom and mm-hmm. runs him out the door. Yeah. Like there are elements here where they are not allowed to connect the husband and wife. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, but, you know, where I was going is, you know, <laughs> He's, you know, he's like, no, I'm going to stay. She goes and he's left there on his own. He then, you know, starts to maybe think like, okay, maybe there's something to this or you get that feeling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and maybe it's the accident that the boy had. Well, no, that wasn't that bad. Maybe it's me falling from the scaffolding that was the danger. Well, no, no I recovered. Maybe it's me having this like premonition that. And, you know, ultimately, no, there's something even worse <laughs> coming. And, we can't even determine what that is until we see it. Did anybody pick up that Hereditary is just a total ripoff of this movie? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. What, what, explain your thesis. All of it. All of it. The We have at the beginning the husband and wife. We have negligence with the son there and the, the daughter dies. Um, actually, even throwing my feelers out into YouTube for any type of other points, I saw even... Uh, theories that the son killed the daughter that he because pushed her of the into way, the lake yeah because the of pond. the way that she's laying when she's in the pond drowned she's not tangled in anything she's mm-hmm. just laying face up just like completely flat like doing Ooh. the stiff as a board thing and it's very much again. like she was held underwater hmm. or just was pushed you know on her chest and fell backwards into the water so like you know, and I'm I'm not trying to throw out anything of like, oh, that's my interpretation. I'm just saying like people are looking into stuff like that. And so if we're seeing that son killed the daughter, it's or it's an accident. Either way, it's kind of the same thing. We have the parents at different stages in their grief. Mm-hmm. Um, we have seances where the mom is now kind of just running with that, and the dad's like, no, 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 that's not what this is. We just have to talk as a family mm-hmm. you know it's 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 like beat for beat other than being in venice like well, well and and no naked satanists right and no, that, so <laughs> kyle basically I, lots of nudity away, either way yeah <laughs> what i'm hearing your takeaway kyle is that we should all watch hereditary again got it <laughs> no my my takeaway is watch this instead Fair, fair. Right, as, so then, as much as you should also watch Wicker Man instead of Midsummer. Oh, Wicker Man is so good. It's right? the original. The original yeah. you're talking. Yeah, yeah. yeah both of them. So yeah, good. both of them. Both of them. Okay, especially so, the Nicholas Cage one. 
<laughs> he sees <laughs> the red slickered child figure. He finds her, it, him, whatever it is. And then David Lynch uh, becomes the director of the movie. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that it's a... So we we didn't even mention that there is a serial killer loose in Venice the entire Well, no, movie. Kyle mentioned that. Oh, Kyle did you mention that? Okay. Just a little bit. We don't get to see that much. Right. No. So it's like not that big of a deal until it obviously is at the end. So then... He sees the young, the 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 the, the short. Oh, wait, figure. I will tell. I will. I you, will you do quote. It. You do it. I will quote what, what the Wikipedia description has on this. The figure uh, turns to face him, revealing that it is a hideous female dwarf. Correct. And approaches him, and he says, "Wait, wait, wait!" And she shakes her head, no, and she pulls a meat cleaver out of her apron pocket, and chunks it right into his slashes his neck while the priest is waking up in his home and while the wife is distraught feeling something yeah and i mean this is i mean as good as any an example of rogues editing here yeah which we didn't even talk about i mean we did but we didn't i loved the ending to this i didn't like it i loved the ending yeah. to this movie. There is a serial killer. It's a dwarf in a red in a red slicker. Sm- yeah. Slicker. His um seizures as he's dying. Yeah. I-, I loved every bit of this. Yeah. Kyle, Kyle, I'm not wrong, am I? I will say that I love a good chop in the neck with the big pink fluorescent jallo blood. Yeah, jallo um, blood. Jallo blood all you know, the way. You know exactly what the fuck I'm talking about. The like, we know this is Suspiria blood. You know, it's just yeah. pink. You know, or it it doesn't look like blood, but it's like, oh no, that's like this vibe of blood. It's like mid seventies blood. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's like spurting out of the neck and kind of spasming on the ground as he bleeds out. Great kill. What the fuck though? Like, <laughs> yeah, I loved it. You know, I, I mean? loved it like, so much. But wouldn't anything else be better? No, I don't like. I think it had to go in a strange direction. I mean, like, like the metaphor. The metaphor will work regardless of what way kills him because he's right. dro- driven towards this thing. I like understand that he's ignoring fate and being pulled toward this thing that's going to be his demise, and he's not afraid of it like he should be because he's not spiritual. Like I, I understand, but a mutated dwarf woman in a raincoat. Well, couldn't it? Couldn't yes, he have just okay. tripped? Number like, one, <laughs> number one. I don't think that's exactly what's happening. Okay, I don't think that there's a okay. serial killer in Venice. It's a dwarf old lady in a red slicker. You think this is more subjectivity because so much of the film has been Correct. we're seeing stuff through his Correct. eyes. Yeah. I don't know why. So you're saying it. I'm the dumbass taking everything just face value <laughs> while I watching a obviously never, metaphorical movie. I would never call you a dumbass <laughs> to your face, but I I'm kidding. But I think that where were the Don't Look Now sequels of the other killings that was whatever was manifested well, that, in that yeah, situation? Yeah, that, that wasn't this story. I no, understood. No. I believe that this is a perfect culmination, a perfect culmination to literal, figurative, clearly the notion that he is psychic on some level, 
because we do learn that when he saw his wife, Mm -hmm. that was just seeing his wife at his own funeral boat. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I don't know. I love this movie. I didn't like it. I loved it. I'm glad to hear you say that. I mean, I, I think that to me, this, I remember seeing it, uh, you know, years ago when I had first probably seen it on some lists about how, you know, it was this underappreciated 70s horror film right. and like, you know, like, and getting interest. I'd seen walk about. I think before this, so I kind of knew who Nicholas Rogue was, and I had obviously I had seen The Witches when I was a kid. Actually, I liked that one. Oh, is that him? Yeah. That's oh, okay. Him. With um, uh, Angelica Houston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. I remember seeing this, and when that happened, I was like, I've been watching a David Lynch film the entire time, and I didn't realize, you know, this is pre-Lynch. I mean, this yeah. is you know, th- this is. I think Rogue doing something, and and to me, why does Lynch throw those things in there? It's not to like necessarily show us that we're in weird this for weird sake. strange universe, but it's to kind of externalize the strangeness right. of our own subjectivity and the and the way that we perceive the world and how we never kind of. And I hear where you're coming from, Joe. Like that, I I agree that we should question whether or not that like actually happened. Is that the figure that he saw? Is that what actually happened? I mean, he dies. We, we, it's we, a we version of that. his daughter that is the opposite of her, for one thing. That, that's an interpretation. But who cares? I mean, it's just yeah. so awesome. It's not as scary it's threatening, as the behind It's unexpected. It's, it's totally off-putting. Yes. It's, I mean, I think it does all the things in that moment that it needs to do where he is meeting his end and we as an audience are being confronted with something that we just could not have anticipated. This is what grief looks like, y'all. Getting killed by a dwarf. It can happen to you. Yeah, it could. <laughs> you, you better get over your you better get over your kid dying or your you, kid stabbing you the better neck process. By a dwarf. You get yourself a good therapist or you're gonna get stalked so what, by a dwarf. What what did your partner think, Kyle? Oh, she she loved it. But yeah. you're not you're not loving it, I can tell. I enjoyed it all the way through. And then the ending happened and I was kind of left to, it was kind of similar. I feel like I'm always on for these because it's the same as AI where I watched the thing all the way through. Mm -hmm. I recognize all the parts. I know what they're all doing, but it's kind of just like takes talking about to make them all fit together more. I guess I just don't do that that much by myself. But when you're able to actually have like a three-way discussion about this type of thing and like sort stuff, I I just really feel like the the murderous dwarf thing at the end is just so silly that it uh, I don't know not undercuts <laughs> but it makes it it makes it not as good as it could have been for me yeah, well, and I and I and if it was a movie about a malicious dwarf killing people and then that happens at the end I'm like okay cool that's like par for the course but now I we're watch, now we're watching like, Trick or Treat yeah right. <laughs> But, but as you know, I thought that like him kind of final destinationing himself in some haphazard way at work was going to be kind of the payoff. And then it, you know, like, cause that's, that's what we're led to believe. He has like two or three on-site work mishaps that could hurt him, escapes all of them just for this to happen instead. And it felt, it, it was just like. What if you're watching The Exorcist and then Indiana Clown jumps out and just pies you in the face? You weren't <laughs> expecting that. And I'm like, no, I wasn't. You got me, I guess. Exorcist <laughs> believer spoilers. Hello. Yeah. yeah. I don't, <laughs> well, David, I think you and I are a little more. Who knows? 
David, I think you and I are a little more congruous on this one than Kyle. Yeah. Hey, and, and I don't dislike. I never said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I've been helped along in this conversation immensely by this 2022 pumpkinator. Dude. It, aged in bourbon barrels this is I, next level i'm i'm actually concerned that i'm making no sense at this point no. but, but okay good it is the pumpkinator aged in bourbon barrels as advertised it's the pumpkinator this dark normally with this poor darker i think so yeah okay. yeah i mean it's always an imperial stout but okay. you know the, the the bourbon in there just adds that layer of complexity which <sighs> i'm not the biggest pumpkin pie spice guy i don't crave the pumpkin ales in the same way that some people do i always have a few every season because i'm gonna try them and you know that's it's fun but it, i never come away thinking oh i need a 12 pack of that or i need it you know whatever i end up feeling like okay that was a good experience mm -hmm. move on this is one where if i had some more bottles of this sitting in the cabinet i'd be excited and i'd, yeah. be, and I'd be saying okay great i'll take one of these out next week when i'm you know watching the next horror movie that i have on my list or whatever like th this is a solid 12.6 imperial stout with all the fun complexity that comes with aging in bourbon barrels i've got nothing to add it was impeccably delicious and i like the idea that we sat on, sat on it for a year before it was open so you know got some you know delicious aging and notes in there mm -hmm. now this elysian elysian what did you say kyle elysian elysian the great pumpkin is is a more straightforward lower abv pumpkin beer it tastes like a you know a a, a pumpkin pie in a glass kind of thing and, and they did they did a good job with it and i was a little little hostile up front, but maybe I shouldn't have been because, you know, my rule on these that are purchased by a um, a big boy is I'm going to drink them till they don't taste good anymore. And this one tasted pretty good. 8.4. That's not a that's not a subtle ABV. Yeah, I, I'm a little less hot on this just because oh, it is a more straightforward next, pumpkin ale. Yeah, especially if you're it, going side by putting side. Putting it next to it, it's, Forget it, it. it pales in comparison. Forget it. But it's oh, fine for definitely. what it is. Yeah. How was yours, like, Kyle? Oh, the uh, the Southern Tier Pumpkin. Yeah, um, I like this one a lot. It is imperial, um, so you can tell we're like going up on the malt. It's a little bit more bitter. The thing that I look for when I'm seeing pumpkin is not just pumpkin, but I'm also looking for a bit of the spices as well, the allspice and nutmeg and stuff like that, like on the nose and in and in the flavor. And this doesn't have as much of that. It feels like more just kind of straight pumpkin, mm -hmm. which which is good. I like it. Um, I feel like when I go looking for more pumpkin, I'm looking for stuff that says and natural spices, you know, instead of the uh, ale brewed with pumpkin and natural flavor added. I want the uh, more of the uh, nutmeg and, and allspice and kind of the pumpkin pie whole platter to come through instead of just the pumpkin specifically itself. But for uh, an 8.6, it, it's it's doing the trick for sure. Nice. Sounds good. I wish we could have enjoyed it with you. Well, we kind of did, just remotely and uh, by yes. having another beer. And it's always a lot of fun to have Kyle on an episode. I'm I'm always uh, excited when he's on. And, Are you guys as excited about After Hours as I am? I'm so excited. I am. Fuck yeah. It's just another indication that our conversation continues because that's the best thing about beer in a movie mm -hmm. is that the conversation doesn't end here. You can find us on all forms of social media. We have 
Facebook, obviously. We're out there on Instagram. We have our own website, beerandamoviepodcast.com. You can find us there for some nice curated lists of our episodes, as well as a link to our Tee Public store, where you can find various forms of merch. And you can join our chat on Discord under the name Beer and a Movie. The conversation continues. Just ask us for an invite. We'll happily bring you in there. Come on in. And also, we know you're listening on your favorite podcast platform. But before you leave, won't you please rate us and leave a review? We hope you'll make it five stars so the algorithm can do what it do and put us out there as an option for more listeners. You've just experienced another hauntingly good episode of Beer in a Movie. Until next time. One of the things I love about Venice is that it's so safe for me to walk. Thank you.